Hello, and welcome to the My Messy Church podcast. Each week, we'll be going through your questions from the weekend services and doing our best to present answers from a biblical perspective. If you haven't yet listened to the weekend sermon, I want to encourage you to head over to curtislake.org backslash media for context of what we will be discussing today. We love getting your questions and cannot wait to grow together. So without further ado, let's dive into My Messy Church. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, week three of our My Messy Church podcast, where we're looking at your questions, um, questions that were asked this past weekend uh, from our church service. Uh, we were looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19, if you want to look back at that. Uh, so we're gonna, only got a few questions this week, so this may not take as long as uh, our first couple did, but... Then again, you never know how long I'm going to talk about things. So, all right. First question actually is a bit of a repeat uh, from from last week. So either I didn't do a good job of answering it or uh, somebody didn't listen to the last podcast. So I'm going to do my very best to not give a non-answer if that's in fact what maybe I did. Anyway, the question is, why don't we have a cross in our sanctuary? Not necessarily a crucifix, but a cross. So if you don't go to church here, you happen to have come across this podcast. Uh, we have kind of a, um, a a modern stage set up uh, that varies from time to time with lights and other elements uh, that serves as a backdrop for uh, our worship team. And then, of course, whoever's speaking, uh, that's kind of what everybody's looking at. And so the person here is asking, like, why do we not have, like you might see at other churches, sort of front and center across as a part of the, the decorative element uh, of the church? And so I did share last week that sometimes we do, and other times, most of the time we don't. Like, we certainly don't have a, a fixed permanent structure uh, of a cross or anything like that. So why? Why don't we have that? Uh, and this is where I'll try to, to not give a non-answer. <laughs> However, there is no particular reason why we don't have a cross in our sanctuary. Like it's not a, it's not a statement. It's not a, uh, like a moral decision that we're opposed to or against having a cross. In other words, if I went to a church and that church had a cross in its worships, um, uh, its worship space, a sanctuary, the auditorium or whatever, I, I wouldn't be sitting there offended at, that there's uh, a cross there. Some people might, there might be some who have uh, the perspective that the cross is tantamount to uh, something like an idol. Uh, but that's, we don't not have it because of that, nor do we have it because we think that it's a necessary feature. And I guess that's really kind of what it comes down to. Uh, I had referred last time, and I'll just mention it again, that in the early church, if you really get back to kind of the roots and the heritage of the ancient church, what you would not find anywhere there is a cross set up or erected as a, a symbol that was necessary for people who had gathered together to worship kind of around or to be looking toward uh, while they were worshiping. I mean, just, it wasn't a thing for one thing. It would have been a lot of the, the meetings that were happening. A lot of the gatherings that were happening were happening in secret. Like the last thing they wanted to do was, uh, show off to the governing officials or other, uh, other people that might kind of get them in trouble for worshiping. Uh, Cause Christians were not looked uh, in a lot of time. They weren't looked on as, as being, the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of people that were good for society, not, not because they weren't doing good things. I mean, those that were living in radical allegiance to Jesus were living these at these incredible lives. Uh, but yet they were still oftentimes seen as, uh, I don't know if you'd say enemies of the state or at least non-contributing citizens or people that were, that were bad for the, the imperatives of Imperial Rome. And so for a, a long time, the church was underground. Uh, you know, we know in the, the mid to later part of the first century, uh, the church faced incredible persecution. So again, the, the last thing they have is a building that everybody in 
the community knew like this is where the Christians went and assembled for church and had a worship service. And then in that place, there was a cross that they were gathered around. So, so anyway, we just, I think the important thing to know is that the cross isn't necessary. It's just, it, it really isn't. Uh, I wonder, I wonder why that might feel so important to some, uh, this person asks, not necessarily a crucifix, but a cross in case you didn't know there, uh, there's a distinction here. Uh, the crucifix is often uh, attributed to mainly to the Roman Catholic Church, uh, but also I believe the Lutheran Church, which would be a Protestant uh, kind of mainline denomination, uh, I think has a crucifix as an object of their worship. But of course, the Lutheran Church was sort of an offshoot of the Roman Catholic Church. And so to take on and keep that part of the heritage is not necessarily surprising. Uh, but the crucifix is basically a cross with depicting Jesus suffering on the cross. And that's a religious icon. So the evangelical church, of you know, which we are a closer part, uh, traditionally has gone away from the crucifix, uh, but oftentimes portrays the image of the cross, you know, just the simple, the simple T of the cross. Um, so yeah, the person's not asking for us to put a crucifix up, which would probably go against our general tradition. Uh, but even the cross itself, uh, again, not, not for it, not against it per se. If there, if the, if, if we had a cross in the sanctuary that was sort of built in and a featured part of just the way the sanctuary had been designed, I wouldn't be looking to dismantle it to tear it down and get rid of it because it was it was bad or something that we shouldn't have uh, but neither am i particularly compelled to figure out a way to get a cross back into the sanctuary what's important is the message of the cross right and that's what we don't want to lose it's the centrality of what the event of the cross means and christians in particular don't necessarily need icons or symbols um that become objects of veneration, right? We, we, we worship an invisible God who certainly revealed himself in the person of Jesus, like took on human flesh, but that is essentially a spirit being. And, and, and so we worship this, this invisible God. And I think also take with us kind of the traditions of trying to stay away from even the appearance of, idolatrous practices that is you know putting up certain objects or depictions of things that then become the object of our veneration as opposed to the god that we are uh that we were worshiping so hopefully that's a fairly comprehensive answer again i mean it might not it might not satisfy a person that really wants a cross in the sanctuary where they're worshiping in may not find satisfaction in that answer but hopefully there's uh, some explanation there uh, that'll make a little bit of sense. All right. The second question is, how do you explain to someone the difference between biblical truth and true culture differences between now and biblical times? So that's a good question. And if I could parse this out a little bit, I'd, I'd want to be careful about uh, how we distinguish between the idea of biblical truth and true culture differences. I think that what's at the heart here is, hey, we have this ancient set of documents, right? Which is what the Bible is. It, it is a, is a library, a collection of documents that have been accepted as the canon of scripture. That is, they serve as uh, the rule for God's authoritative word in our lives, uh, if you believe in the the inspiration of the Bible, the inspiration of the Word of God. Um, but anyway, I mean they they were written thousands of years ago in a at a different time in a different place, different culture, lots of lots of things going on there that are very different from the way we experience and live in the world today, and uh, and and so understanding the gaps between say our culture and the culture uh, of the people that were being written to or being written about it's very very important but it doesn't necessarily mean that 
even while there may be these cultural differences that exist, that there isn't still this thing called biblical truth, right? Like the biblical truth takes into consideration what might be the cultural differences and then interprets them and conveys them into our real life today. So I, I, I think it's important to establish that. Now, what that means is that you're going to encounter certain things within the text that are not necessarily going to relate like apples to apples for our particular context. But that doesn't mean that what was written about or to whom something was written or what the subject might be, that it wasn't or shouldn't be understood as biblical truth. Um, for instance, if you have a writer that's addressing some particular feature or custom of the day, the, the biblical truth is that, that that custom was actually real and in force and, and is to be taken into consideration when trying to understand the context of the whole thing. You know, if, you read, if you read any kind of period literature, uh, you might find certain, uh, certain customs being talked about or turns of phrase or figures of speech or things like that that make absolutely no sense, right? Because we don't, they're not in our common usage. And so what you do is, as an interpreter is you go into and try to figure out, okay, what did this mean to the person who was reading it at that time? Because it did have meaning. There's a tendency, I think, sometimes to just take these cultural differences and then dismiss out of hand whatever's being said as if it has no benefit to us whatsoever. But I think the better tactic is, well, no, 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 let's, this is something that was written and has now been passed on to us. So let's, Let's try our very best to actually understand what is it, what did it mean to these people? Because only then can you begin to address the degree to which it may or may not apply or how it would apply in our particular context. It's like, okay, well, maybe we don't have that going on, but we might have something else going on that this helps us to, to understand like, all right, how do I bring a, a, a Christian mindset, a Christ-like mindset um, or um, or ethic into this particular context. Now, how do you explain to someone the difference? Well, that you, you have to you have to do the work, right? You have to study what those what those differences are. Um, and again, I think the right spirit is to not just disregard or dismiss something as oh well, you know that was that was for back then. That was for a culture that was completely different from our culture now. And so there's absolutely no relevance there. I think that's, I think that's a little bit of a cop out. Like, no, let's, again, let's really try to understand what was going on there and see what does this ultimately mean uh, for us. And, and, and people, they, they, they take the Bible and they oftentimes twist. If they don't just outright ignore something, then they may twist or redefine the sense that it was to be understood. And then use that refined sense to support some particular um, pet belief or desire, as opposed to letting the text actually work to inform us. Uh, I will say that there are, there are some, there are certainly some areas of scripture that are very difficult. Uh, the nuance is such that you have very, very bright people uh, chiming in with completely different takes on that. And some people would look at that as a reason for why we can't trust scripture. And I'd say, well, again, I think that's a, I think that's a cop out. I, I think more it's, well, we come into our study of scripture with hopefully a high degree of humility that understands that there are going to be gaps of knowledge that we just don't possess. But I think, think it's fair to say that never, ever, ever does it come to a point where when you're talking about these differences, these things that maybe divide the kinds of churches that might exist in a town, right? Like we have various denominations because various denominations have arrived at at least some level of different conclusions about certain things that that mark them as being different from this other church that maybe sees it differently. So while we have those things, there's, 
in the plain sense of scripture and the simple message of the cross, uh, of the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is, there, it's just, if you're really, really honest, I think, and not trying to close your eyes in disbelief or not hear things in disbelief, then the, 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 the big picture of God's redemptive plan for humanity is never, ever lost in what might be some of those details that people differ on. And so um, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it's important to, to go ahead and try to have the best uh, or a growing comprehension of all of Scripture, for sure, uh, but to not be so confounded uh, that you get to this place where it's just like, oh, I, what's the sense of bother of even reading this thing? It's just, it's never going to make sense to me. I, that is not the case. The Scripture is very, very accessible. If we'll do the work of actually trying to access it, if we come to it with the right spirit and heart that says, God, I want... I want to hear from you. I want you to speak to me. I, w I, want, I want to learn from your word. I want to learn what you have revealed. Yeah, you'll come across some passages that may be a little difficult, but the daily habit, the continual habit of, of digging into and investigating scripture is going to yield uh, incredible uh, spiritual growth for your life. Uh, the third question is, what is the purpose for Jesus dying on the cross in such a violent manner? Why couldn't he die of old age or in a less violent way? I, I'll be honest, I've, I've wondered this myself. <laughs> uh, the way, the manner in which Jesus died, um, you know, could God have had done that some other way? Like, So let's, first of all, let's just assume, let's presume that the the need for Jesus to die is there, right? So we start with that Jesus came into this world and took on the weakness of human flesh so that he could sacrifice his life as a ransom for all mankind. So let's just let's let's start there and say that that death was necessary as uh, atonement for for our sin. So why did Jesus have to die on the cross as opposed to maybe uh, a kind of death that would have been uh, would have involved far less torture, uh, far less uh, of a gruesome experience? Um, this questioner asks, you know, even dying of old age or something like that. And I think that I think the best way for us to understand the the impact of the cross because and again remember we were talking about the event of the cross and what is that what is the point of it right that uh, in the message this past week I, I was trying to help people understand that that there is a point that Paul in his writing was concerned was going to ultimately be lost in in the church of Corinth. And he didn't want for the point of it to get lost. We don't want for the point of the cross to get lost by the way we do church or live our Christian lives. So why did he have to die in such a violent manner? From a, from a functional standpoint, he probably didn't. Um, he, he could have experienced you know, capital punishment in a far less gruesome way. But the fact that he did die on the cross, I think, I think it depicts something for us that especially us modern people want to try to dismiss or downgrade. And that is the actual seriousness of our sin and also the degree of separation that we actually have between us and God prior to his saving us. In other words, uh, uh, I don't think it's far-fetched to think that for the most part, most pretty good people think that they are, without even really thinking about it, that they are, that they're good with God. Uh, nobody's going to claim that they're perfect, but most people I think walk around life trying to be good as, you know, as, as good as they they want to be as a 
as a member of society, right? Most people, uh, unless there's a criminal element to you that wants to destroy, that just wants to wreak havoc within a society or that is so caught up with your own uh, self-will um, that, that, that you're overtaken by that and you'll do things like uh, instead of taking on an honest job, you'll, you'll do something that's crooked and steal from somebody. You'll, you'll do a job dishonestly or maybe even break into somebody's house and steal from them, right? So most of us aren't like that. Most of us are, we're good people. Not perfect, but good. And we have this sense that God, whoever that is, is probably able to treat us like we would treat each other, which is, you know, if I do an evaluation of most of the people that I encounter, uh, my evaluation would say that person is a good person, right? That if we're, we're ranking, they'd get four out of five stars, okay? Nobody gets five stars because nobody's perfect, but certainly I could give this person four stars or uh, they treated me poorly uh, and so I give them three stars. But, but everybody's, everybody ranks fairly well. And that's how we look at each other. And I think sometimes we, uh, our lack of actually going through the theological exercise of considering who God is and who, who and what mankind is and what actually is the nature of sin, um, we think God evaluates us in the same way. And so long as God is able to award us four stars or three and a half stars even, that if there's a if there's something after this life, which again, we don't really want to think about a whole lot, but when this life is over, if there's something else to go to that is awarded to those who are good, well, most of us are going to qualify, right? So that's, I think that's, there's just this general sense that, that people have of uh, like where they stand with God and scripture actually gives us, it paints a very different picture, right? It paints a picture where regardless of how good you may be compared to everybody else, we all, every single one of us, to a man, to a woman, are as far removed from God, are as separated from God as could be measured by infinity, right? That, that we are, we're not this close to God. We are, we're unspeakably far from God. Why? Well, we are separated from God because of our sin. Oh, yeah, but my sin's not that bad, right? I mean, I... I haven't, and we could list all the different things we haven't done that, again, have us in this place where we're, we're worth four stars. So, like, how could the, how could the, the, the more innocent sort of imperfectness of my life and my existence, how could that actually disqualify me from living eternally with God, if that is even such a thing? And again, it's just that I think it's a misunderstanding and a misappropriation of what our sin actually is, right? Our sin, it separates us wholly and completely from God because first of all, God is perfect and he is perfectly holy and sin cannot stand in his presence, right? Like sin is not this thing that can just simply be dismissed as if it were nothing. If you think about the way that we treat each other and uh, how we work to reconcile, forgive uh, when when one person, when one party has done something wrong to another, um, you think about the 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 kind of forgiveness that we grant if we're willing to forgive. That just says, okay, you know you know, thank you for, for your apology and for feeling bad about this thing. And I forgive you and like, let's move on. And, um, there's in order for actual forgiveness and reconciliation to take place, there has to be a price that is paid for that thing. And so in that interaction, you may have one who wor then like works for a long time or for the rest of their lives, trying to make it up to the person that they have offended in an effort to balance the ledger. Or you have the person is able to truly forgive, like truly grants 
forgiveness to the person that who's offended them. In either of those cases, somebody has paid a price for the actual offense. Either the person who's committed the offense is working hard to undo the harm that that offense caused, or the person who was offended pays the price in that they 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 take that on themselves and they grant forgiveness, right? So Jesus uh, teaches us this in uh, one of his parables, like the parable of the debtor, where a a um, you know a debt that was owed that couldn't be paid was just it was canceled out, it was wiped out, and it would have been as if that debt never occurred. And so what the cross does is it demonstrates that God, who is perfectly holy and perfectly just, he doesn't disregard or dismiss sin as if it were nothing. What he does do, though, is he deals with it. How does he deal with it? Well, he deals with it by he himself taking on the form of human flesh and humbling himself and dying on the cross as an atonement for our sin. So what has he done? He has he justified those who put their trust in the event of the cross, in the sacrifice of Jesus, and he takes on the price himself, right? So it's not that nobody pays, because if nobody pays, then there's not really actual justice. It's something else. Uh, but the fact that God takes on that price for himself and in essence ransoms us away from our sin um, it, it, it justifies the harm that was done. So that's why we can be wholly and completely forgiven. And actually, in a, uh, you might've heard this talked about this way, like in a legal sense, we, we are justified before God. Our, our, our ledger has been wiped out, not by anything that we have done, right? Because we weren't in a position to actually undo the sin that we committed, the offenses that we are guilty of, but God did, right? And so he empties our ledger. Now, did Jesus have to die on a cross in order for that to happen? Well, no, not exactly. But the, what the cross, like God, God speaks to us uh, in oftentimes very, very dramatic ways. And God also deals with us at a point uh, in our you know, when he enters into the timeline of human history, he will speak to us in ways that will actually grab our attention. And so if you think about crucifixion in Jesus's day, crucifixion meant something. Uh, and the fact that Jesus was crucified on a cross, then it teaches us something about, uh, first of all, the grievousness, the actual grievousness and offense that our sin is. Jesus died a gruesome death because our sin, as little as we might want to think of it, our sin is actually gruesome. Jesus died this horrific death as illustrative of the degree of separation that we actually live in between us and God. Like The cross demonstrates that in a profound and uh, very, very real and sobering and kind of tactile way. Like, no, your sin and your separation from God is, is uh, greater than you can imagine, right? So the cross, it provides a picture for us. Not only, not only that, though, and we kind of talked a little bit about this Sunday, the cross also demonstrates the nature of the kingdom of Jesus, right? The, the cross was a symbol of shame. Uh, it was a symbol of rejection. The cross, ordinary people didn't die on the cross, right? You didn't, you didn't, instead of getting a ticket for jaywalking, you know, you didn't get sent to the cross. The cross was reserved for the worst of humankind, the, the great enemies of the state. Um, it was the capital punishment of all capital punishments to be crucified on a cross. It was humiliating. It was a demonstration, a, a violent demonstration uh, that this person who is being crucified has been declared an enemy of the state. And don't you dare follow in their footsteps or their example. And then how does, how does God frame the sacrifice of his son, well, he frames it 
in that exact context, the, he allows Jesus to be crucified on a cross, marking the, the, um, the most important features of the ethic of Jesus's kingdom, which are humility, right? There's nothing more humiliating than being crucified on a cross. And so the ethic of Jesus's kingdom promotes humility. It promotes self-sacrifice, right? That like the greatest kind of sacrifice that a person can make. The ethic of Jesus's kingdom turns upside down the, all the power systems of the world, all the systems that say that the powerful is who gets what they want. Jesus says, we are going to arrest this world through um, a demonstration of love, a love that is shown through humility and through sacrifice. And so to kind of sum it up, um, in order to maybe um, take care of the, the matter of atonement, uh, Jesus could have died a less horrific death, sure. But what, what would that have meant in the annals of human history, right? It is sort of the bigness, the, the gruesomeness uh, of the cross that still has ripples of effect into our lives today. Like, um, I, I've shared this before. I've, uh, as many of you have probably watched The Passion of the Christ, which is a depiction of the crucifixion, and it's it's rated R, right, because of the violent and gruesome portrayal of Jesus' crucifixion. And uh, some of you know this, but like, I own that movie, and it's still in the shrink wrap. I've never even been able to bring myself to watch it. And I've seen some... I, I've seen plenty of violent things um, in movies and television, and whatnot. Like it, it, I not that I, I love seeing violent, but I, I mean I've seen some violent, violent things. I have never been able to bring myself to actually put that movie in and watch it, because uh, I, I, I sort of know, like even without watching it, I know the, the way I'm going to, to like the gruesomeness of that, the reliving, the retelling of that story. Um, I, even without watching it, I feel it. Like I, it's, it's, it's a real part of me and it, I think helps me to, to not forget too easily the, um, the implications of my sin, how my sin harms me. It harms the people that I love. It does harm and injustice to this world. And so my sin is not something that I need, should be okay with continuing to live and persist in, but rather something I need to confess to God, repent of and turn away from and trust in his power uh, and his spirit to move toward a life lived in righteousness and not sinfulness. Hey there, it's Shayna, and I just wanted to let you know that if you have been loving this series as much as I have, you are probably wanting to go deeper, or maybe you were taking notes this weekend and missed a quote or wish that you could re-listen or reread something that was on the screen. And I just want to let you know that in the show notes today, we have linked some notes that I took over the weekend and kind of put together some questions for thought or discussion if you're in a group or if you just want to integrate it into your personal quiet time. Um, this is just a resource that we'll be putting out every week in PDF form. So you can either look at it on your mobile device or you can print it off, but it's something that we want to help you continue to grow in your faith. So throughout this series, you'll notice we have Sunday mornings, we have the podcast, we have these questions, social media bits. We really believe that God wants to teach us something through this series and we want to help you as much as we can listen to what he's saying. So Without further ado, let's continue on with our podcast. All right. Um, fourth question. We got two more here. Fourth question. As a Christian, what are some ways that I can address my pain that is different than how the world addresses their pain? So in the message this week, we talked about how there's there's a point to the cross, right? And one of the points is that is 
it offers us forgiveness. Another is um, that it sets us at a place of peace with God. But thirdly, it also provides a point or context for our suffering. So here we all are with uh, our pain, the suffering that we endure in this world. And if you can imagine, a, a lot of people live their lives with no context and no hope toward the pain, the agony that they feel in this life. It could be, you know, a kind of physical pain. It could be emotional pain. It could be relational pain. It could be the kind of pain that um, is sort of a nagging part of our lives, or it could be a pain that is completely and utterly paralyzing uh, to our lives. And, uh, you know, you read stories. Uh, recently, I was kind of re-listening to, I, I read the story um, of Corey Ten Boom, uh, the story called The Hiding Place, which if you've never read that, I'd recommend that highly. Uh, but it's about this woman who lived through the Holocaust, uh, she and her sister. And the, the telling, the retelling of that story is just the pain and the agony and the humiliation and the suffering uh, that people endured um, over an extended period of time is just like, it's, it's, it's mind numbing to, I can't even imagine how I would get through something like that, but she does such a great job of helping the reader to understand, like, how is it that she was able to stand up in the midst of all that pain? Well, it's, she understood that pain in a larger context, right? That that pain, uh, was something that was a part of her life and her existence that's found and anchored in and surrendered to God. And not everybody has that. Some people, they just have their pain and there's no reason for it. It's just, it's misfortune. It's bad luck. It's the universe is against me. And so there's no, there's no real hope. It's just, well, this is the, 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 this is the, the hand that I've been dealt and that's it. And that's all I can really think about it. But for the person who's following Jesus, we understand that like we follow in his example of agony, right? The suffering that he endured on the cross, we too are asked to follow in his footsteps and to, to carry into our lives a willingness to undergo suffering for ourselves. Not, not, not suffering so that we can pay for all the bad things that we did, but suffering uh, because of what will ultimately be the glory that will one day replace it. Um, Jesus wasn't too good to suffer. And if he is my master and I am his follower, then I too am certainly not too good to suffer myself. Now I'm, I'm, I'm glad that like my suffering pales. I mean, it almost feels disrespectful to even describe it this way, but my, my suffering pales in comparison to the kinds of suffering that people like Corey Ten Boom and others who um, just are called and, and um, yeah, I, for whatever reason, called into a, a level of human suffering. Like I, I don't want to experience it. I don't, I don't want to have to walk through some of those things that they do, but um, so yeah. So uh, how, how can I address my pain? Well, I think the, I, I think the main thing is like, we let's bring that pain fully, completely and authentically to Jesus, right? Let's not be afraid to cry out to God because of the pain and the suffering that we're experiencing. What I'm prone to do, what I think probably a lot of us are prone to do is we, we try to mask the pain, right? We look for ways to, to deal with it that are not the way we ought to deal with it. And so we medicate against pain, obviously, right? Every time you reach into the, um, to the cupboard for, you know, those masking agents, those pills that are going to help relieve pain, what are we doing? Well, we're, we're masking the pain. And so when it comes to the feelings that we're experiencing in our lives, we do that. We shut ourselves off from the world. We close ourselves off to relationships. We work on taking what is our regular vulnerability and try to build up a wall around that so that we're not so vulnerable. Cause I mean, who of us wants to be hurt? Who of us wants to experience pain, right? So we, we have all these measures that we undertake in order to, um, to avoid pain on the one hand, or then where pain is unavoidable. Well, is there something I can do to mask it or forget about it? Um, substance abuse becomes a major tool to help people 
remove themselves or to escape the pain that they're experiencing. So uh, what would be a better strategy? Uh, A better strategy is to address it with God, right? To bring it to God. You read through the Psalms and you find the excruciating degree to which the human life is often lived, right? You have these poets that are just sharing, like just dumping out their heart, these incredible emotions that they're feeling because of the pain that they're experiencing. And, uh, and and that is, that's what we do. We, if, if we can move toward the kind of relationship with God, where we're able to like really press into his presence and bring our pain to him, whether that means we're bringing it to him with tears and, or, or bringing it to him in such a way where our prayers don't even have words anymore, right? Like you ever hear uh, a person, something, something really, really traumatic has happened and, and you can hear the guttural responses of agony that are coming out. Like there's no words to even describe the level of pain and suffering that they feel, we need to grow in our faith and our hope toward God to the point where we can we can be like that with God, not just, all right, well, I'm going to shut myself off from even feeling this and compartmentalize it and tuck that away in a corner and then never deal with it again. That's not healthy because eventually, um, eventually that's going to manifest. That's going to come out again. All right, final question. If we were to follow Paul's message, why do we put on such a showy, why do we put on such showy events? Wouldn't that be promoting our church in a way that takes away from the word? So I think the person asking this question is, you know, Paul, so Paul says, um, I wasn't sent to baptize. I was sent to preach the gospel, right? To preach the message of the cross, not with wisdom or eloquent words. And so it's a great question. Like, okay, well, so then why do we, in our modern context, um, work so hard at putting on a more showy kind of worship gathering or a showy event rather than why don't we just, why don't we just keep proclaiming the message of the cross and that and that alone and not worry about how fancy we're being or how clever we're being. Why do we have to have all these other strategies in order to try to like sort of kind of catch people or bring them in. Um, doesn't that, the second part of the question is, doesn't that have a, a tendency to promote something like the organization itself and that that is then taken away, it takes away from or masks the cross or the word, uh, the word of God. Yeah. Um, I, I, I definitely can appreciate what is being asked here. Um, I think it's important to understand that, you know, we, we are called uh, as people that God has created and has endowed us with creative ability. Uh, We're called to leverage what, uh, what tools God has gifted us with in order to um, to carry out His will for our lives, right? So, and let's not forget. Like one thing I said this past Sunday is, when Paul uses these words, he is not saying that there isn't ever a place for um, for wisdom to be used in conversations that need to be had. He's not saying that there aren't things that we are going to need to work really, really hard at understanding theologically, um, that there are going to be lots of tough questions, tough things out there that are going to be subjects of conversation. And, and we need, we actually, we need to have good answers, right? Uh, so Paul says, I, I didn't come to you with a bunch of fancy words to proclaim the gospel because I didn't want the message of the gospel to get masked by this clever showing. Like, in other words, I didn't want to be the show. I didn't want for there to be a whole bunch of people subscribing to something that they didn't even really understand because I was able to propagandize them into it, right? That's that's kind of what Paul's against. There was 
uh, it was a it was a gift back then, just like it's a gift today. The ability for uh, a master of oratory to get up in front of a crowd and talk about something in such a way that they solicited the exact reaction from that crowd that they wanted. Right. This is the job of. Uh, of politicians and persuasionists, uh, people that want to influence popular opinion. And for Paul, the message of the cross does not, has not, and will never actually go along with popular opinion. It's never, those two things are never going to be the same thing. Uh, Even like if you fast forward into an era of history where the church became the predominant or Christianity became the predominant religion of the West. And, you know, you could say practically everybody was a Christian, right? At least that that's the name that they took on for themselves or the way they would have identified themselves. Even that, like they weren't, the masses still weren't actually Christian. <laughs> like they weren't, they weren't Christian in the sense that they were following Christ you know, simply taking on a name or, you know, flying a banner or a flag or something like that, that, that professes a kind of allegiance is not the same thing as actually moment by moment living out what you are professing to believe. Right. So, um, yeah, like Paul knows that the, 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 um, the, the, the process of, of growing as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, is just that. It's a, it's a process. Uh, he criticizes the church in one place. He says, you know, for as long as you guys have been doing this, you should be, you should be feasting on these, these other, the, like these deeper truths, these, uh, these other kind of facets of the Christian life. But instead, I, I, I look at you, and all I see is a bunch of spiritual babies, and I. I have to remind you of the most elemental things about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, because it's as if you haven't gotten it, like you haven't grown beyond this stage. So, so there is, there is supposed to be uh, a trajectory of growth that lasts the rest of our lives as we walk with Christ. Uh, but, but never should that overshadow the simplicity and centrality of the event of, and the message of the cross of, and of, of Jesus, like the Jesus is at the very, very center or should be at the very, very center of everything that we do. Um, now we, as a church, we say, okay, well, we, um, we want to put on this big event for our, for our community to participate in. And, and so the question could be, well, well, why do you want to do that? Do you, are you doing that so that you can seem like a big deal in the community? Is this to elevate like who and what you are as an organization? Is this just to, um, to, to help feel more proud about what you're doing or who you are or anything like that? It's like, okay, well, if, if the event is being put on for those reasons, then that is definitely a problem. However, if, if the event or what this questioner might describe as a more showy kind of display of uh, something like a worship service. Um, it, it, like if you're doing that with the desire to reach people right where they are, right? Okay, we're going to put on this event because it gives us an opportunity to get next to somebody that we may not otherwise get next to. Uh, oh, well, can't you just get next to them by, by going down, you know, door to door, knocking on their doors and handing them a, you know, a flyer or a tract or something that kind of explains the gospel and try to have a conversation with them that way. Yeah, I, you, you could do that. And that has been done and sometimes it is still done, but I think you could make the case that that's not necessarily in our particular context, the very best way, um, to reach people. Like most people, don't want to have that conversation at their door. They don't want to, like, it's, they're going to be put off even by being put in that situation. And so they might find themselves resistant to the gospel as opposed to they, uh, what happens when somebody walks in the doors uh, of a, a church, let's just say of our church, right? And so they walk into the lobby and there um, they see people enjoying being there, Um they, they witness people talking with one another, laughing, sharing. 
they themselves are, you know, hopefully greeted by uh, a, a few friendly faces. And, and then they come into, you know, our worship service, which is a public, our worship service is a public thing, right? It is not, our worship service is not solely for those who are bona fide Christians and members of the church. Uh, the church is there, but so are a lot of other people. And so we want to, we want to take those guests into consideration at least as much, perhaps hopefully even more so than the Christians. Like the Christians that are there, they should know why we're gathered there and it should take little effort um, to help them, uh, you know, experience the presence of God, you know, for the time that we're gathered together. But for the guest for whom this is a strange place, a strange environment uh, that might, their, their discomfort might be so off-putting that they're not even able to hear a presentation of the gospel. I mean, that's, that's problematic. So yeah, we don't want to be showy for the sake of being showy. We don't want to, we don't want to be innovative and on the cutting edge so that everybody is like, wow, look at how awesome they are, or he is, or she is, or look how awesome this thing is that they do. That, that, that's, that, that's actually detracting from the impact that the gospel ought to have in our lives and in our community. And so, yeah, let's work hard at making sure that we're not taking away from the word of God. We're not taking away from the centrality of the cross and of Jesus Christ, Christ and him crucified, right? Those are, those are the first and most important things uh, that Jesus be first and that everything else flows kind of out that. So out from that. Um, all right. That's all we've got to for today. Uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, we'll hopefully See you again next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of My Messy Church. If you haven't done so yet, be sure to head to your app store and download the Curtis Lake Church app for easy access to all of our content. Thank you so much for joining us, and we can't wait to be with you next week.